Joker to Despicable Me 3, and then you did a Spider-Man. <laughs> okay. Uh, welcome to Going Off Track. Uh, everyone wants me to tell this story. You have to tell this story. Uh, these guys will really like to hear about my dating life. Uh, yes. I hate talking about so it publicly. But, but it is fun to talk about because uh, it's always something embarrassing. And I was telling them last night I was supposed to go uh, see Spider-Man. I forgot to buy tickets in advance, but I was like, eh, it's a Tuesday night. I'll just show up, buy tickets. Williamsburg, sold out. Um, only other movie available, Despicable Me 3. Uh, not that crowded at 9 o'clock in Williamsburg on Tuesday <laughs> night. There were probably like six other people in the theater. and uh, Who couldn't get tickets to Spider-Man. Get tickets to Spider-Man. Here's the thing. I... It was next door to Spider-Man, and we we were really early. I was like, we could just go in Sneak there. In. But it's sold out, and two people who bought tickets yeah. are going to be totally... And it's like a smaller theater. And then I was like, well, maybe people bought tickets and aren't going to show up. But I felt too bad. So, <laughs> Despicable Me 3. No. But it was... Uh, it was fine. It became like a kind of a joke, and then it was it was it was actually it was fun. It was but totally really the important question was it better than Despicable Me Two? Oh, did it fill uh, in the plot holes? I didn't see <laughs> Despicable Me Two, but I well, then it, how did you know what was happening? I I, I own it on DVD because Vanessa's voice is in it yes. at the end. She plays a stewardess. She does. She plays a stewardess. Okay, what the about plane. Despicable Me? I mean, obviously, it can't be. I don't than think that. I've ever seen either the first two, but I was able to follow <laughs> the plot pretty well. You were. Okay. I got that they, I mean, they, they provided a lot of clues. <laughs> hey, listen, I don't want to hear it, man. I don't want any spoilers. I'm, I'll be going to see that movie. Are you taking everybody? I won't be going at nine o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> see, my kids went last week to see Despicable Me 3, and I was given leave with my brother-in-law to go see Baby Driver. And I was like, wait, what? What's happening? <laughs> so you, did, what did, did I you didn't s- get to go see, I don't have to go sit through Despicable Me 3 and I can go see a film I actually want to see. Wow. It was amazing. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, we had the opposite experience. I always go see the film I want to see. Yeah. This is the first time <laughs> yeah. I ever didn't, and it was my fault. But, <laughs> wait, so you went with a group, including your kids? No. My we were we were at we were at the beach with like all kids and cousins. Yeah. So my wife and her twin sister said, Hey, look, we're gonna it's a rainy day. We'll take the kids to Despicable Me Three. You go with uh uh, with my brother-in-law and you guys go do something because and- see i always i've been to all these like birthday parties and stuff at the movie theater and i go in and i go like okay i'm gonna go to the next theater and see an adult movie while these kids are all in here watching whatever despicable me three the problem is the kids movies are all like 80 minutes long yes and like there's no way i could ever get away with it <laughs> really because despicable me felt like it was three days long <laughs> Well, hey, I'll tell you something that doesn't feel three days long. <laughs> is it our podcast today? Yeah, how's that? I, that was a my great... first segue in in five years. Oh my God, I think this is my first intro in two. <laughs> yes. Uh, today on the podcast, John Ronson. Yeah. Um, amazing. Holy amazing. Shit. Amazing. This is totally not the normal podcast for us. This has been your this yes. one, one of Jonah's white whales. One of my white whales, I want to say that his new um, Audible series, The Butterfly Effect, debuts... On July 27th. So it's coming up very soon. Um, John Ronson, uh, author of You've Been Publicly Shamed, uh, helped write Okja. Manistere uh, Goats. Manistere Goats. Frank. Frank. God, um, Frank. You've heard him on, you've seen him on John Stewart. You've heard him on the Rogan podcast. That's how I learned about him. This American him. Life. This American, yeah, he's. You know uh, his voice. You've heard it at some point. Yes. Yeah, he's kind of a, like a social media expert, like. 
He could probably solve the world's problems he could. if we could just give he him really full yes. responsibility. Yes. I really, I really, um, yeah, this is a great interview. So thanks. Um, thanks to everyone who helped set it up. Like um, Stefan? <laughs> <laughs> like Stefan, Stefan and his wife. Thank you so much for helping out with this. And, uh, yeah, so excited that we got John to come by, and um, this is a great episode. We just taped it, so yeah, let's just get into it with uh, John Ronson on Going Off Track. It's going off track! Uh, Brett's our bartender. Uh, <laughs> the one thing I was going to ask is, do you think I can be out in sort of about an hour or a little bit of Perfect. an hour? Oh my Perfect. gosh, yeah. Only if you're brilliant good. and funny. I, I am always. <laughs> yeah. Especially in my... Schleppy sweatpants. <laughs> I always yeah. when when uh, I didn't realize how much of you I knew and was a fan of right. until Jonah was like, you know, I'm a big fan of all this stuff, and I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh I know that. Oh shit, I read that. Right. Oh god, I just it's one of those things. That's and then my cool. first thought was when someone said, uh, well, he's Welsh, uh-huh. and and that always makes me think of Terry Jones. Yeah, although. You know what? I, I used to live really close to Terry Jones, but not in Wales, in London. Really? I used to see Terry Jones all the time. Yeah. And Terry Gilliam. There yeah. was a big Python contingent around where I lived in North London. They came, I went to the, um, uh, they did, they did a Q&A at mm-hmm. the Ziegfeld years and years ago. And I got to go and they had um, waiters walking around with, with um, platters. And they would be like, ask a question. Right. And put it down. And the parole room was packed. And uh, my question got asked. Uh-huh. And it was, what time is it? <laughs> and John Cleese went, quarter past nine. And I was by myself. And I was like, no one to high five. <laughs> no one to high five. <laughs> but I know he would always give Terry Jones like crap about being Welsh. Right. And I always thought that was funny. But because I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are we? I guess we're, we're the sort of, we're the, we're the least exciting of the Celtic <laughs> Um, races, basically. Like, what would you compare it to in the States? Honestly, like, sort of West Virginia or somewhere. Oh, my heavens, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally, because, like, it's a dying mining community. Oh, wow. Not much of Wales is. Not, not, I mean, I grew up in the city, which was, like, in the, in the capital of Wales, which was more kind of cosmopolitan. Yeah. But, well, I mean, when I grew up, it was pretty, it was kind of rough, you know. Yeah. I mean, we would get beaten up. But then again, you, you know, it, but yeah, we'd get beaten up all the time and there wasn't any money and all the schools were tough. And um, and we don't have the sort of beauty, like Scotland and Ireland. This mm. is why I say we're like the least good Celts, because <laughs> Scotland and Ireland are beautiful. But Wales kind of isn't really beautiful. It's like, it's just, it's like industrial and it's got a few beautiful little pockets, but... It's not. Like, if you drive through Scotland, it's all beautiful. Mm. If you drive through Wales, you're sort of looking for the beautiful bits. Is Salcom in Wales? Where? Salcom. I went to, it's like one weird uh, little town I've been, I went to in England when I studied there years ago. That was, right. No, well, I've not heard no, of it. It okay. might be, but that's, I haven't yeah. heard of it. That's funny because we've had Scottish musicians on. We had this guy, Scott Hutchinson from Frightened Rabbit. Uh-huh. And he was talking about how Glasgow is so depressing. And so, I yeah, guess. My wife's from Glasgow. <laughs> okay. Uh, in fact, she was just there till like two days ago. Oh, wow. Um, Glasgow, I mean, it's a bit depressing, but it's also very beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the West End of Glasgow is like, like extraordinary. It looks like, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to sort of think of an American equivalent, but just, you know, old and beautiful with like 
vines and like New Orleans or something. Okay. Um, not, not quite as nice, but. So you said dying mining town. You just need someone to come in and like bring mining back. Like, R- right. like America's attempting. We need it. It's important. It's true. It's yeah. true. Uh, John, I kind of found out about you originally through, uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Okay. Which, and then, um, and I've read, you know, most of your books and uh, I just read Elephant in the Room. Uh-huh. So, but I was curious um, if you listened to that Alex Jones episode that he did on Rogan. You know, I haven't yet. And I, I, I should and I plan to. And I still kind of text him from time to time, me and Alex. We have a, we have a kind of, we have a sort of um, uh, complicated relationship. I can imagine. Uh-huh. What was his reaction like to, to the elephant in the room uh, he hated it really yeah like he said to me oh you know you can say whatever you want about me i don't care i'm going i love it but they never mean that uh, <laughs> and, and sure enough he didn't mean it uh he hated me implying that um that trump was playing him because that's that's the sort of conclusion i came to was that trump was uh was manipulating alex and Alex was the sort of, you know, because Trump was would like schmooze everyone he could, and like Glenn Beck and people like that were like, ah, oh, you know, I can I can see through this like like a pane of glass. But no powerful, important person had really schmoozed Alex before, so he was just really excited about it. And um, I mean, that's that's the sort of conclusion I came to anyway. But Alex really hated that. He hated thinking that, you know, he hated the idea that he was being played by Trump. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and he also hated the fact, and I kind of understand this, that early on in the story I said that Alex was the most irresponsible man I'd ever met. But, <laughs> but he, he is, and, and you know, I, and I sort of felt, you know what, I honestly felt like we were at a crisis point in our uh, history, and Alex should not be influencing a president and I felt like I had to say something, like it wasn't a time for pussyfooting around. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a really brave thing to do, especially having, you know, like, I know it's hard to put that stuff out there and know people are going to see it. Yeah, but what, I mean, what I, but also in the story, I wrote about the good times that me and Alex had had. And so I sort of hoped that, that the, it would all balance each other out. But no, Alex <laughs> didn't really regard the stuff I wrote about the good times. Because I did say some nice things about Alex. I said that when you go to his offices, it's very diverse Right. Um, and, and it is. And, and so, you know, nobody else would have said that about Alex. So I was really trying hard to to sort of find the good stuff to talk about. And, you know, what a charismatic broadcaster he is. And, and, and you know, and he is. And um, so I did, I said all of that stuff too. But, yeah, he didn't. I, I don't know. I think he's <laughs> changed a little bit since when I knew him in the 90s. Yeah. I think he's changed. I think that Trump has made... I think they've made each other more extreme. I think Alex has made Trump more conspiratorial and Trump has made Alex more racist. Uh, I was talking about this to a, to a to an old colleague of Alex's the other day because that sounds like a big statement. And, and anyway, I was talking about this to an old colleague of Alex's and, and he agreed. He said that he didn't remember like any... Islamophobia in Alex's broadcasts until like two years ago. In fact, quite the opposite. He was convinced that Islamism had nothing to do with 9 <laughs> 11. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, do you feel like media in general has gotten just more extreme? Yeah, everything's got more extreme. Everything. You know, all the worst people I ever interviewed are now in power. Uh, Alex is... So it's your fault. (laughs) I am the conduit between Omar Bakri, between, you know, ISIS, uh, Trump, and um, the British government, because I've interviewed... Like the worst members of each of them. Do you invest in Hobby Lobby or do they go public? Or? <laughs> um, I interviewed this guy, Omar Bakri Mohammed, uh, back in the 90s. He was like a British Islamist. And we sort of treated him quite benignly because, you know, in 1996, there was really no chance that this little gang of radicals, of Islamic radicals, would ever have any power. So we almost treated them like, like a kind of farce. Um, and in in the years that followed, a whole bunch of them went off and killed people. Alex's own son, who, like, the last time I saw him, he was like this sweet little kid talking to me about how uh, he was worried that his dad was getting such bad publicity and he'd just seen the movie Malcolm X and, and he was worried that this is how things would end up with his father and he was really scared. You know, this really sweet interview I had with, with Omar's son, lost touch with him, you know, didn't know what, what happened to Omar's son. Turned out he joined ISIS, and then ISIS killed him. Um, ISIS seemed like really bad bosses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and Omar's in prison in Beirut for inciting terrorism, but a whole bunch of Omar's people have, like, driven, you know, truck, you know, driven vans into pedestrians. So then, So there's that. And uh, then I interviewed this guy called Reverend Ian Paisley, who again was not a big, well, he was a very big deal back then, but, but, um, he was the head of the Democratic Unionist Party, which is like a fringe Northern Irish Protestant political party in Britain. And now they've formed an alliance with the Conservative Party. And, you know, to give you an example of the DUP, um, one of, one of, them that I was with, Reverend David McElveen, was the head of the Save Ulster from Sodomy campaign. And, you know, now they have political power in Britain. And Alex Jones is influencing Trump. It's a disaster. Honestly, it's all the worst. What do you think was the tipping point with all of this? Like, people just letting their extremism go unchecked and, like... Uh-huh. It's weird, because I see, because I remember growing up in uh, Northern Virginia, outside of D.C., and I remember the slow build of rush rooms, of uh-huh. Rush Limbaugh, people just going and sitting. And I mean, I feel a lot of people think it's just like PC culture got so extreme that it's this backlash against that. You think that. it's that? I think, there's a, I, think, I, think that's a, I think that's definitely a component. Um, I think social media, um, yeah, it, it, it encouraged people... On, on every side to get more trenchant and, and hardline and extreme on the right and on the left. And, you know, I sort of see it as like a polluted lake where all of us polluted the waters and then Donald Trump emerged from it like a sort of three-eyed fish, uh, but from, from the lake that we polluted. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, um, yeah, it was every side, did it? I, I felt really, you know, somebody on the left... I felt really uh, sort of pissed off that this kind of strain of aggressive authoritarianism basically took over when ideology became much more important than humanism. Um, I mean, it's what my last book was about, so you've been publicly shamed. Yeah. Uh, 
I just thought it was it was worrying and dangerous, and and it certainly wasn't speaking for me. And it sure enough, it wasn't speaking for a huge swathe of people in Middle America who, you know, probably would have bought the Bernie Sanders um, vision of America, but didn't buy this. If you step out of line, you know, this sort of aggressive strain of identity politics, where if you step out of line, we get you. Right. Well, that's not going to play well to, you know, people outside of Brooklyn. And sure enough, it didn't. Those people thought, well, that didn't speak to me. I'm going to vote for Trump. Yeah. What? I mean, speaking of you've been publicly shamed, I mean, obviously yeah. there's, a, you know, Justine Sacco, that's a mm-hmm. huge component of it. Uh-huh. And I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time because I've wondered about it. What is it about our culture where we like kind of, we get some kind of pleasure in tearing people down? Well, well I think people do. I think lots of people do it for like lots of different reasons. I mean, there's some like... Trolls, like misogynistic right-wing trolls. I think some of them just do it because they like being dicks. Like they like uh, they they like sort of spreading, uh, you know, jubilant chaos. But then there's some other groups of people, like on the left, who are doing it for ideological reasons. You know, they genuinely believe that that you know tearing down Justin Sacco is for the greater good. Uh, that. Um, yeah, it's it's like sort of fighting a bigger battle, and you, and now somebody said to me on Twitter today, like, how could you know, how could he be a a moderate like now? And what I, I didn't reply because I, I was I didn't want to get into a big fight with them. <laughs> but you know what I would have said, and I, you know I I think this is true. Other people may not, but I think you know extremism is the reason why we're in the mess we're in, and. If being a moderate means listening to people and and trying to understand each other and trying to be humanistic instead of um, trenchantly ideological, then I think that's that's the that's the way out of this mess. I mean, do you think there's a level of just like self righteousness too of being like I'm better than this? Like I didn't do this. At like, yeah, I think there's an element of that. Like um, also. You know that is that movie Apocalypto where where the Mayan deity starts drinking, you know, just needs more and more human blood, and so they're just constantly like a sort of steady stream of beheaded people to sort of feed the insatiable blood needs of the Mayan deity. I think in a way that's Twitter. So when we're <laughs> when we're getting someone else that we can relax, it's not going to be us, right? Right. You know. Now we just have to wait for our Twitters, the people who created, to get drunk and make fun of all the Jews in the world like Mel Gibson did and then right. go that way. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, the first Apocalypto reference we've had on the podcast. I think, I think so, That's yeah, good. finally. That was Paul. We've been waiting for this. Right. I enjoyed Apocalypto. I don't think I no, saw No, I didn't it. enjoy it. Yeah. No. no. You endured it? It's a tough watch. It's like theater of cruelty, like yeah. our toad style. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard film to watch. It's like... um um I didn't realize, again, because I, I don't, when Jonah was uh, talking about you and the parallels, um, Frank really affected me, the film. Oh, thank you. Really affected me. And then... Uh, Can I, I ask, like, this is a bit self-indulgent, but was there any particular, like, moment from Frank or... or? Uh, the ending, uh-huh. when he... when he uh, I love you all. Yeah, oh my God, that killed me, killed me. I find myself humming that a lot. Right. And, um, and I watched it a while ago. And also... Um, the because uh, I you know I heard about the film and then I went backwards to uh-huh. learn the story and uh, when I learned that the keyboard player was 
you know, really you. That affected yeah. me even greater. I should before. say that I portrayed myself in the movie uh. as more monstrous than I hope I was in real life. That was my, well, that was the thing, because that right. was that the, uh, the trying to achieve, um, quote unquote, mainstream yeah. uh, a- appeal and, and, kind of glomming on and taking advantage of frank that was that 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 affected me because it, it was so sad yeah well you know what and honestly in real life it was yeah. frank who wanted to do that um in so in real life i was in this band with this guy frank sidebottom mm-hmm. who wore a big fake head that he never took off and we were very marginal but people sort of loved our marginalness you know we we, we would play like we you know we'd play pretty much any city in britain to like I don't know, a thousand people, fifteen hundred people. And I was like a living, you know. We'd just tour and we'd pay to a thousand people in Liverpool or Lytham St. Anne's or whatever. And it was perfect. But then one day, uh, Chris, who's, who's the, the man underneath the Frank head, um, decided that, you know, he'd been doing this and plateaued, you know, like for years. And now he wanted to be more mainstream. So he brought on like a proper saxophone player and a proper bass player. And like, I don't want to sound wise after the fact, but uh, even though like, I was like 20, but I did say, like, I don't think this is going to work out. Like, we are, I, you know, our, our fans don't want a note perfect Frank Sidebar, Bossobo Blimey Big Band. Uh, and sure enough, they didn't. You know, it was <laughs> like, uh, we were like, honestly, it was like, it was like, we, we, we were like Survivor. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh and the audience was like staring at us agape like what had what had happened to us and and by the end of this tour we just we it was like spinal tap we'd gone from like a thousand people a night down to like 50 people like word had got around we got this terrible review in the new musical express basically saying you know what, what are they thinking this isn't the frank side bottom we love so anyway 20 like cut to like 25 years later i was fired at the end of that tour we all were and wow. uh um did he fire you with the head on or off <laughs> i think yeah I, can't, I just you know what i don't think i was actually fired i think it's suddenly the phone just stopped ringing sure. and then i began <laughs> to notice that frank was doing solo shows where he was playing his own keyboards mm. and i think that's what i knew and i moved back to London. like the part in the film that i didn't realize that was note like almost word for word mm-hmm. how, it, how it happened how you got like you what you were booking a show at college and that yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah the way that i got, got to join the band yeah frank like yeah. the dialogue is like the same yes the dialogue was exactly the same they, I, they said they were looking for a keyboard player i said i play keyboards they said well you're in i said but i don't know any of your songs because because the gig was that night and they said uh, can you play c f and g and I said, yeah. And they said, well, you're in. So, and that's exactly how... how oh, I can play CF and G. I, mean, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, you don't have to touch the black notes. It's great. <laughs> but anyway, 25 years later, oh um, I'm talking to my friend Peter Strode, and he's suggesting that, that we write a movie sort of inspired by my time in the Frank Sidebottom band. And, and Peter said, you know, I think it would be better if you were the one who wanted to make the band more mainstream. And I saw, I, I'd never... Like, I've, I was raised as a journalist, so the idea of, like, making something up like that was, like, revelatory to me. And Peter sort of looked at me patiently and said, you know, we are allowed to make things up, you know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, so that's why in the movie it's the John character who tried to make the band more mainstream. Because I think in movies, you, it just need, things need to be slightly simpler. Yeah. You know, Frank has to be the sort of outsider artist. John has to be the malevolent force yeah. trying to trying to tear everything apart. It's an intense film. It's great. 
Thank you. And the fact that you're like, let's see, who's ridiculously handsome we can shove underneath that paper mache? <laughs> oh, Michael Fassbender. Sure, why not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shove him under. And he's, oh, it's so good. Yeah, you know, it never, it never really surprised me that I always thought, both me and Peter always thought, this film will only get made if we get a big star to play Frank. Yeah. And we will get a big star to play Frank because some big star is going to want to spend an entire movie underneath a big fake head. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in fact, Michael Fassbender was, I think, the first... Like the first person to read it. Like we never sent it out. Like Michael Fassbender read it and said he wanted to do it, and then it just happened. How did he get? Were you just hanging out and you said, "Here, read this." No, you said I you didn't send it out. I don't hang out with Michael Fassbender. Come on. Uh, okay, I he's think, very magnetic. <laughs> I used to think. Nobody gets that. Uh, and Magneto. I, right. I once thought that. Um, He'd somehow got hold of a copy of the screenplay, but I've got a, I've got a feeling that was a bit that's a bit romanticised, and actually somebody at Film Four or at the at the one of the agents had sent it to him, um, but I don't know for certain. Okay, yeah, oh, so I loved it. Thank you. I'm I'm really proud of Frank. One great thing that came from Frank was that uh, uh, Bong Joon Ho, the, the, the Korean director, was a big fan of Frank, and I, and as a result, asked me to co-write. Okja with him, mm-hmm. um, which only just came out. Yeah. And, and I love Okja. I think. Did it's, you uh, did you did you know him from Host or Snowpiercer uh, or? No, I I didn't. I sort of only vaguely knew him, and then after I met him, I, I went back and watched all of those films. Yeah. Um, but the first time I met him, I hadn't seen any of his films. Snowpiercer isn't. That's another intense film. I didn't know yeah. that was a comic. Right. That, yeah. That was kind yeah. of my thing for a little while, and I was annoyed I hadn't read it. Right. But he's uh, did now did he. Did he shoot uh, Okja? Like, does, does he still shoot the edit? Like, does he still yes. shoot that way? Yes. Ah, it's so crazy. He like. What does he, that mean? He so you know you you, sh- you gang shoot like we're gonna do all the inside scenes here we're gonna do all this but he shoots the way he's gonna In edit order? the film. Yeah. yeah. What oh, it yeah, means it's is very that expensive. they it, yeah and they don't let it means that the scenes don't really play out the scenes because he he basically shoots the shot and then the next shot is the shot that's going to cut into that shot. So, um, so basically, you know, they, they spent ages setting up for 10 seconds. Of, yeah. It was amazing. And then there's a guy sitting right there on set who's editing the film as, as Bong shoots it. Um, but I should say, though, that like, so by the end of the shoot, you've got a finished film. Right. But it still took him six months in the edit to get it right. Oh, yeah? Yeah, afterwards. <laughs> That's I, insane. I don't yeah. even understand. Like, I watched Ocho the other night, and uh-huh. I don't. I don't understand how you even act like it's the character, the, the pig, what I, like it's, I don't understand how you can even act around that. Cause it looks so great, but I kept yeah. thinking about how you would shoot it. Well, it was a, it was a guy holding some rubber uh, <laughs> and, and the rubber kind of looked a little bit like Oakch's head. I tell you what, I tell you when I knew that this, this, cause I love Oakch. I mean, I hope, I hope you guys yeah. like it. Yeah. It's I, great. I think it's wonderful. And, uh, I think the moment I knew this, it was going to really work, was that the very first time I saw a rough assembly of it, at the end, in the slaughterhouse, it's basically, you know, it's a man holding some rubber, and I was watching it on my iPhone, um, and I was still in tears. And I thought, you know, wow, if, if the film's going to make me cry like this, then, you know, when it's completely finished. And sure enough, uh, every time I've seen it in a cinema with an audience, it's just... 
sobs all around me and people have started posting videos of themselves sobbing uncontrollably at the end of Oakdale on Twitter. That's become a thing and I, I love it. I, I think every time I see one of these, I think... Uh, I be like Cartman at the in that episode of South Park. Like I, I, I would lick up your tears. I drink your tears. I sort of felt I contributed. I contributed to these tears because <laughs> it's because it's so you know in the sort of stifling ennui of life where nobody feels anything anymore. To be able to like cut through to people's souls yeah. that way is so great. Make you cry. It's CGI, yeah. motherfucker. Yeah. I, I realize that sounds. Uh, glib but it's not glib i feel what i really mean is that i just feel like incredibly proud to have contributed to a film that's moved people so what what was the connection how did you meet him uh he he was a fan of frank so he just just called me up that's awesome yeah and the casting in in okja is insane too i mean unbelievable yeah it's yeah totally um for the first time because with with frank i never got to do i never got to work with any of the actors which i think is normal for a screenwriter like the screenwriter writes the film and then hands it over to the director and then uh you know the director's one who has the relationship with the actors but in okja uh tilda was involved tilda swinton was involved right from the beginning from even before me so i was having like skypes with tilda while i was writing the screenplay and uh, that was great you ever call her orlando <laughs> no, but you know what? She's not intimidating. You would think somebody as as sort of um, otherworldly as Tilda Swinton would be intimidating. Did you meet her? Tilda? I met her. Yeah, Did my you? sister was in that film Trainwreck mm. with Tilda Swinton, and I met her at the premiere, and she was so nice, like She's so, so nice. cool. Yeah. yeah, I love her. Who? What part did your sister play? She played Amy Schumer's best friend. Oh, okay. They kind of like are gossiping at work, right? Yeah, cool. But yeah, it was very cool. I'm friends with. Uh, you must have met Kim, Amy Schumer's sister. Yeah, yeah, Kim. I know. Yeah, I yeah, I went yeah. to Europe with that. I know Kim pretty well. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good friends with Kim. They're great. I love Kim. I do too. She's she's awesome. I mean, what? Um, obviously, you have this kind of new Audible project coming out as well. I mean, um, how did that come about? It's like sort of hard to keep track of all your stuff because I feel like you're working in so many mediums. I am. It's because when I was about just after I left, just after Frank Sidebottom fired me. I started working for this late night radio show in Manchester and and it was like my life. I'd, I'd turn up at the studio and at 10 at night and I'd broadcast. I'd, honestly, I was so happy uh, broadcasting into the night till one in the morning and did it for a couple of years and then the radio station got taken over and we were all called into the new boss's office and and fired one by one. And as he fired me, he rubbed my back sympathetically. Um, and as he was rubbing my back and, and firing me, I was thinking, never again am I going to let some you know, like a, some person control my life. So ever since then, I've always tried to have like a million different projects going at once. So as a kind of buffer against failure. or um, And my, my audio books have always like, you know, people like my audio books so then audible came to me and said uh they wanted to do like original content like highly produced narrative audio series and did i want to do one and and i said yeah i'd, I'd love to so um so i've and we've just so we just finished it's called the butterfly effect and the whole season is following the flap of a butterfly's wings through to its consequences, and the kind of it's a, it's, it's a kind of experimental way of doing a narrative. I think that uh, um, if you sort of trace the consequence out and out and out, where might you end up? 
like how far from the original flap of the butterfly's wings might you end up if you just follow this, the ripples. So in season one of The Butterfly Effect, the flap of the butterfly's wings is this boy called Fabian in Brussels having a brainwave and his brainwave was to get rich from giving the world free porn, uh, free online streaming porn. So he's basically the brains behind Pornhub. And to give you just one example of where the ripples ended I'm unfamiliar with Pornhub. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, to give you an example of where we ended up by the end of episode two, uh, from consequence through to consequence, three women are setting fire to a Norwegian man's stamp collection. <laughs> oh and then at the end of episode four, a boy in Oklahoma with autism is forced to move house to a house on the very edge of town. And then at the end of episode five, a man in New Orleans kills himself. Uh, so... And I, I probably shouldn't, like, I don't know if I should tell you like, how yeah. I got from one to the other, because I think it's just a little of the sort of mystery. Yeah, yeah. Everyone no, should check it out. It's I, I mean, idea. I was curious um, what you thought of Black Mirror. Mm. Well, I, I really like Black Mirror. And I, I, I mean, I like some more than others, but I think that's, like, everyone feels that way. But I know Charlie Brooker pretty well. Because it like seems like him. one of the episodes is sort of maybe based on one of your ideas or very similar. Yeah. One episode of Black Mirror was definitely inspired by by so he by a couple of chapters from so you've been publicly shamed um i mean i know because charlie brooker gave interviews where he said it uh, and it was the episode hated in the nation the the one with the killer bees yes oh yeah yeah uh so there's a there's a woman in that one who's been shamed on the internet for doing something stupid at a war memorial and that's totally from so you've been publicly shamed where I had, where I tell the story of this woman called Lindsay Stone, who was in front of who, who she 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 was a care worker. She works with adults with learning difficulties, but she had this kind of douchey joke that she'd share with her friend, where she would like um, post on Facebook photographs of her posing in front of a sign and doing the opposite of what was happening on the sign. So she'd smoke in front of a no-smoking sign and loiter in front of a no-loitering sign. Anyway, she took her, her the, the, the people in her care on a trip to Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, they went to the Mint and they went to the Holocaust Museum and at night they did karaoke, they're having a great time and then they went to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And firstly, there was a sign that said, keep off the grass. And Lindsay sort of said to her friend, you know, dare we? And they were like, no, 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 we don't want to get into trouble. So then they saw a sign that said, silence and respect, and as Lindsay said, inspiration struck. So she posed in front of the sign, pretending to shout and flip the finger and put it on Facebook. Nothing happened for like a month. And then a month later, she was like worldwide trending and just destroyed. Didn't leave home for a year and a half, you know, <sighs> contemplating suicide and, you know, believed every single negative tweet and Facebook comment about her, got fired from her job, you know, became the epitome of of you know she was attacked by the right it was the right it was like the militaristic right who were getting lindsay but the, the impact it had on my mental health was kind of extraordinary anyway i think charlie brooker uh wrote that episode of hated in the nation sort of based on that i mean do these people like obviously with justine sacco and stuff you visited her much later after this stuff had happened mm -hmm, no mm -hmm. sorry i had beer in my mouth <laughs> um no no I, the first time i met justine was like 
two weeks after it happened. Holy oh, really? Shit. Yeah, she was still like broken. I didn't realize that. Yeah, the two million unknown soldier thing. Like my my father was in the military, and I got to go to the barracks back where they train them and meet all those guys and all that. And you know, they're already a super hardcore bunch, and it's such this crazy honor that whole area. Mm. Like you have to. Not only do you have to have like the 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 merit to do it, you have to be like a certain height. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> you have to like be like you know pass everything that haze the crap out of you and all this not like crazy stuff just different <laughs> oaths and things you have to say but um it's like super reverent like i feel bad for this woman for doing that kind of thing but there had to have been a moment where you go maybe don't and i <laughs> yeah. always think about that because i've had those moments i've uh, done sh- beyond stupid things in print and stuff like that and there's you're like well no you haven't <laughs> well you know when when she posted it on facebook yeah. uh she and like a couple of her friends said, I think this is like, I'm in the military. I think this is a bit disrespectful. Yeah. I think you should take it down. And, you know, she sort of posted about, saying, yeah, what are you talking about? You know, you know us. It's just us being douches. You know, you know, it's just a joke about a sign. And like her military friend mm-hmm. was sort of a bit grumpy about it. And, and then Lindsay said to me that her friend said to her, like, do you think we, do you think we should take it down? And Lindsay was like, no. And then, but, um, they, you know, they thought that all their privacy settings were like only their friends would see this. Ah. Um, but they, something was unticked that should have been ticked. And that's how she became America's most hated woman for a little Holy while. Shit. Insane. Yeah. That doesn't even really seem, you know, everyone's, everyone's trying to get coverage. Mm. so hard and that doesn't even really seem like a big deal to me it's, no it takes it, off yeah it, you know this so this stupid. is what i mean about sort of ideology versus humanism like nobody wanted like sure i mean you, you know but with justin sacco too like these are not these are not great jokes although i would argue that justin sacco's joke was a bad example of an honorable liberal comedic tradition of mocking your own privilege but you know basically these are not great jokes but but everyone's like so desperate to like pull an individual out of the crowd and and make them bear the weight of an ideology on their right. shoulders, and that's what happened to Lindsay. In Lindsay's case, it was the right wanting to like get feminism. No, nobody knew whether or not Lindsay was a feminist, but so many of the comments were like typical feminist, uh, or like the left or liberals, like typical disrespectful hipster liberal no one knew whether that was true about Lindsay. in fact i mean i don't know what Lindsay's politics are but she's not like a she doesn't live in fort green she lives in uh in a, in a house in the woods in uh massachusetts right i mean we i had something not directly happened to me but similar um i play in a band with this guy jeff and he's uh his label was funded by martin shkreli hmm. and he was when all that stuff happened with the aids drug getting jacked up and he became the most hated guy hmm. jeff was on a plane to England with his band and they were about to put out their record and then he landed and that whole, you know, it's like that whole idea of just being out of touch and then landing and then being yeah. kind of associated with this person that's just like kryptonite. What's Jeff's surname? Jeff Rickley. Oh, okay. Um, I thought you were going to say Jeffrey Lewis. No. <laughs> but yeah, and, and that Martin Shkreli guy, but I feel like he's different because he like revels in sort of being a villain. He is different. Ha- he, I mean, I don't know what... What psychology is going on that makes him revel in it? But you're right; he does. You know, he's he's different. I think to the people that I was writing about because I, I decided to give myself the rules, and so you've been publicly shamed that I don't really write about private individuals whose punishments were disproportionate to their crimes. Whereas, I mean, I've got I've got 
um, sort of feelings about Martin Shkreli, however you pronounce it, uh, but um, he wouldn't have fitted into my book, right? Because he's a public figure. He's sort of pushing himself out there as a public figure, uh, you know, who you know is kind of repulsive. He, he wants to be like Piers Morgan. He sort of, for some weird reason, he wants to be a pantomime villain. Yeah, that stuff fascinates yeah. me because mm. I'm a I love satire and it's tricky. You know what I mean? It's very, very tricky. Yeah. Uh, how, you, how you deal with that. And it's, you know, going on for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Shakespeare, tricky, you know, <laughs> yes. it's, it, it's hard to deal with that stuff. So when people don't get the joke, but then you're trying to figure out, well, what was the intent of the satire to begin with? What were you trying to say? Yeah. I mean, we're just in Saka. Um, if, you know, people don't remember the joke. It was, she's about to get on a plane and she tweets, going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Uh, like, I would argue that actually you don't need to think about that sentence more than about five seconds before at least some doubt would creep in that, that it was that it was intended to be taken at face value. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Randy Newman and, and um, his songs are full of, like, mocking his own privilege by doing an exaggerated version of it. Uh, you know, his lyrics are full of that stuff. And so I recognise Justin Sacco's joke for being an example of that. I mean, I feel like Daniel Tosh could say that on TV and no one would think twice about it. Right. So again, there was like a lot of willful misunderstanding. Uh, a sort of ideological frenzy took over the world that night and and a lot of people had to pretend to themselves that they didn't get the joke. Well, what yeah. I think is interesting too and, and cool about the book is no one really stands up for these people. Mm. No mean, one did. Yeah. Standing up for Justin Sacco that night would would have been dangerous. Um, and when I say standing up for them, like, all, like, even if you tweeted that night, can we not just wait till the plane lands to hear what she has to say, that would have been seen as a weakness. Just patience would have been seen as a weakness. What compelled you to sort of write the book and sort of get those people's point of views out? I think it's because, I mean, I, you know, I had no particular, like, like, you know, if I've been totally honest, like me and Justine Sacker come from totally different worlds. Like, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a personal level, she's she's not really somebody I'd be friends with. Like, she's a she goes partying. She's young. She lives in the Lower East Side. She's yeah. like Sarah Lewin, right? Yeah, <laughs> who I like very much. <laughs> yes, her, but yeah, she is, she's yes. she's uh, yeah, exactly. Me too. Whereas I'm quiet and introverted, and you know, never she. But it's it was. I, but I felt that we'd lost our minds, and I felt we'd lost our minds in a way that was kind of anathema to everything I'd learned about the way the world, about how we should perceive our fellow humans. Like I've just spent this year for the butterfly effect in, in the porn world, um, being with porn stars and stuff. You would not believe the preju- you know the prejudice is against porn people. You know they they are stigmatized. They can't get checking accounts. Fabian, the head of Pornhub, wanted a bank loan. Uh, to help him expand, to build an empire based in part on um, on handling pirated content. Uh, I should probably explain this, right? Sure. Pornhub, sure. Pornhub is filled with pirated content illegally uploaded by fans. Pornhub themselves don't illegally upload the, the pirated stuff, but fans do, and, and Pornhub hosts it until they're told to take it down. They are the VCR. Right. So... Um, when Pornhub became big, you know, the Valley 
collapsed, the San Fernando Valley collapsed, or these mum and pop porn businesses, oh, excuse me, or these mum and pop porn companies were going out of business, um, porn performers had to take up escorting to pay the rent. Pornhub uh, killed Chatsworth. Right. Yeah, I mean, it did. <laughs> Northridge is yeah. destroyed. Pornhub killed the valley. Yeah. Um, and uh, it certainly killed the part of the valley which cared about production value. So a lot of crews lost their jobs. A lot of camera people lost their jobs. I met a bunch of those dudes because when you work in TV in California, mm-hmm. when you're not shooting, you can say, tell me your story. And they know what you're going to ask. Right. You go, all right, we're on a hill. Over, and they just start telling great stories. Right. So, yeah. So, so Fabian, let me just go back mm. to this. So, Fabian thought, okay, all these production companies in the Valley are now fucked because of Pornhub. If I can get a bank loan, I can buy up a lot of the competition. Like, they'll sell it to me at cut price. Um, but if you're a porn star and you want to get a checking account that you go to the bank and they say what do you do for a living you say you're a porn star they, they don't they won't give you a checking account because i think it's going to like be bad for their reputation to have a porn star in, in their branch so a porn star can't get a checking account fabian wanted to set up a business based on getting rich from handling those women's stolen porn got a 362 million dollar loan from a hedge fund to do it <laughs> Uh, so that's what I'm talking about, um, kind of stigma. Like, porn people are so stigmatised. Um, someone even said to me on Twitter not long ago, I mean, I'm sure she regretted saying it, but this woman said to me, you know, why are you making, a, why are you making something about porn people? Like, who cares what porn people have to say about anything? So, but I've spent a year with these people and i found beautiful stories about lovely people who have an interesting way of seeing the world um and they're delightful i kind of love a lot of the people that i've been hanging out with this past year and for 30 years i i've been telling stories about people on the fringes of society and quite often i don't like them in the way that i like my porn people but they very often give like really interesting perspectives on the world you know sometimes to go to the very sometimes to understand our world what you need to do is go to the kind of very edges of it and listen to them and try and see our world through their eyes and on, you know, to be what I'm saying is to be curious and non-judgmental. So over thirty years of telling stories, I'm like, that's that's how to do it. That's the way to see the world. It's it's kind and it's humanistic and it's um, it's the right way to see the world. Twitter comes along, and for the first couple of years, I think Twitter was like that. We all we had a window into other people's lives, and we used it to be kind of curious. And everybody, and it was like a sort of place where people could tell the truth about themselves but then it got it grew darker and colder and now it's a place for people to get other people and when i saw that shift i felt so like this is the opposite of what i know is the right way to see the world that's what compelled me to write that book that's really interesting and with the porn thing it seems so hypocritical for i'm sure all these people watch porn Maybe not all, but most of oh, them. Yeah. And then, you they know, all do. Every single yeah. one of them. And, um, uh, yeah, including, I'm sure, the bank managers who won't give them checking exactly. accounts. Yeah, so hypocritical. Fuckers. I mean, do you feel like... <laughs> dude, it's, I, dude I, it's so interesting. I was, I was having this conversation with... Um, it's, it's, that, like, it's like this weird moralistic sense that when you get older, 
You're just like, well, who the fuck are you? People, you know, mm-hmm. do whatever. We had one of our friends in, uh, and here's an author who wrote this book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, Lizzie Goodman. She did this amazing piece on Stoya. Oh, yeah, I've met Stoya. Yeah. yeah. And the piece is incredible. And it, <laughs> com- it touches on the perspective of like uh, feminism mm-hmm. in, in that world, yeah. which is there's almost uh, a weird push for equality when, you know, back in the day when people were getting paid more that it was like, well, the women got paid way, way more. Yeah. It was this very interesting dichotomy. Well, women still do get paid more important than men. Good. Um, can I tell you a story about Stoya? Please. Yes. Okay, this isn't in my porn series, mainly in in, my, in the Butterfly Effect, mainly because I recorded Stoya so poorly. Um, it was kind of really hard to listen to as part of an otherwise very well-recorded audio <laughs> series. Um, but it's, it really, it really um, speaks to what we were just talking about. So Stoya said to me, she was complaining about not being able to get a checking account, you know, or a mortgage because she's a porn star. She said, you know, things were a little bit easier for her because she was on the cover of Village Voice or something on New York magazine. So she's like a porn star who also has some kind of, you know, hipster credibility. So it made things a little bit easier for her. But nonetheless, anyway, she said um, that she does all this work trying to, you know, convince journalists to kind of listen to porn stars when it comes to like, I don't know, condom laws and so on in California, like listen to the porn stars, you know, we're the ones who sort of live it. Um, so she does all of this work, but then she sees like her stolen porn on Pornhub and it's not labelled sort of interesting story, feminist story, whatever. It's labelled dumb slut whore. And she says, you know, when you give our stuff away for free and then label the people that you're giving away for free, dumb teen slut whore. We have to work so much harder. Anyway, what Stoya may not know is that I put that to Fabian. I said, this is what Stoya said. And he said, well, the first thing I want... Fabian's about who was in charge of Pornhub. And he said, well, the first thing I want to say is that, like, we aren't the ones who label the videos dumb slut whore. It's the fans, you know, who are legally uploading it onto Pornhub who are labelling the videos that way. He said, but to be totally honest with you, it helps us because we want to get to the top of the Google search rankings and feminist porn star Stoya isn't going to work. But dumb slut whore, that's what people are Googling. Oh, man. I mean, do you, do you, with Twitter and all the stuff we've been talking about, I mean, I feel like people are still sort of figuring out the etiquette. I mean, do you feel like it's just going to go darker? Do you think there'll be a backlash where people get sick of just like this type of stuff? Or I, I think there was a bit of a... I, I kind of think um, that my book and at the same time that my book came out, Monica Lewinsky did a very similar, you know, a TED talk that was very similar to what my book was about. And then some other people, sort of heroes of the left, like Glenn Greenwald, got involved and said sort of similar things too. And I think as a result of us, I think we slight, I think we changed the argument a bit. So I think that like when somebody's getting destroyed nowadays, they're getting destroyed in a slightly less aggressive way. People are slightly remembering like my book and Monica's TED Talk and so on. So I think things have got a little bit better. Um, but my, my fear is that when all this Trump nonsense is over, um, things are going to go back to exactly how they were that 
that that allowed Trump to get elected in the first place. I think this sort of polarization and everybody retreating to their corners and yelling at each other and the more hardcore and ideological you are, I'm talking about, you know, left and right here, then, you know, the more rewarded you are. I don't think any of that's really kind of going to change. And I think, so I think, you know, well, finally Trump will go. But the ambience from which Trump emerged is going to go back to, to how it was, I think. How do, you, how do you find, like, I guess, strength in moderation? Because I get very polarized when I find, like, you know, friends of friends or whatever, or like, like my wife's friends who are like, well, they voted for Trump. My first thought is, well, fuck them. And I can't, <laughs> I, I have this hard problem. Of, I was listening to um, uh, Turn On NPR yesterday, had my kids in the back seat, and it was a story about how to teach, how to talk to your children about the president. And he said, and my son said, you know, I hear the president doesn't like brown boys. And I'm like, Dah! and I, you know, <laughs> change it. And of course, my six-year-old in the back goes, why doesn't the president like brown boys? And I'm like, because there's people in there, you know, and he's just a bad guy. And I just changed the channel. And it's it's right. hard to like, I, I have, to, I, I try to like, I can't see the perspective. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, this is what, I mean, this is what someone said to me today. Like, how can you be a moderate now? Um, and... I think most people who voted for Trump aren't, aren't bad people. They they were let down. They were let down by the mainstream. They were let down by by everyone. You know the uh, the mainstream media and the left. Like you know, when was the last time the mainstream media and and, and you know people on the left cared about the concerns of middle Americans losing their jobs? Like, you know, no one cared. People thought they were just stupid. Um, so, of course, you're going to end up voting for Trump when you feel like that. But, you know, most... You know, I, I travel America, like, all the time, mm-hmm. like, and I've done for decades, and I, I spend a lot of my time in, you know, Arkansas and, you know, Middle America and so on. And I don't meet bad people. I meet lovely people. But I, but I meet people who, you know, who were let down by the, by the, by the coastal elites, I'm quite honestly. I mean, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. Um, not that much. Like nobody cared. Um, that's why I'm pretty convinced that if Bernie Sanders had got the nomination instead of Hillary, things might have been different. Because because mm. he he spoke to them. I mean, I hope whoever comes next on the left is going to speak to them. You know, whether it's Joe Biden or I don't know Alfred Dwayne Duncan Johnson. Or, or, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whoever he? it is. It's Would all going to be wrestling, dude. Of course, after Trump, a wrestler is, is going to be the Rock. If, of course, because that's because he's a wrestler, and Trump's a wrestler, and he treats it like wrestling. Right. It's all promos. It's all yeah. promos. Although, don't you think that like a, a kind of non? Do you think he's doing such a like people aren't going to want another non-politician after Trump? Don't you think? Yeah, I hope. Yeah. I I, hope. My fear is that he's just weakened the system so that it appears that they can, he can get anybody he can get in there. Mm. Mm. Took away the legitimacy of it all. What do you think about the left's sort of, I mean, sort of what you've been saying about kind of your journalistic question of curiosity, asking questions. I mean, it seems, you know, I, I identify with the left, but also I have this problem with them, like not wanting speakers that don't agree with them. Yeah. Like writing. I mean, do you think that lack of dialogue from other voices is something that's kind of da- a dangerous thing? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, you can always find somebody who shouldn't like have a platform at, at a college. Like, I'm not going to like 
you know, like I can totally understand why someone like Milo Yiannopoulos isn't given a platform at college. But then, you know, the next thing that happens is Anne Coulter's not given a uh, a platform at college. I mean, she was banned from like Berkeley or somewhere. And so, you know, so my, so I think, you know, the problem with the no platforming thing is that it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of aggressive. And again, it turns people off. And I think it elevates these people too. Yeah. I mean, it certainly elevated Milo Yiannopoulos. He knew exactly what to do with it. Uh, yeah, I think it's just proven. You know, you'll always find people who don't deserve a platform. And God knows I've met a lot of them myself. But, you know, when that becomes your default position, all it's going to do is just... People don't want to be bothered with that shit. But, you know, people... Most people don't want uh, a left that if you step slightly out of line, you're you're silenced or relentlessly pursued or punished. Like that. Like who wants that? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I believe I believe in, in, in curiosity and trying to understand people and humanism. And I hope none of this makes me like a sap. Because uh, I also believe in social justice. I believe in all the things they believe in. But I just think the way that they're going about it is is all wrong. What would what would you change? I I well I I wouldn't have a sort of no platforming policy. I I just believe in um, listening to people and trying to understand people. Uh, you know, it, I believe in what Obama believed in. In uh, you know, Obama after those five cops were killed a, a year ago yesterday, I think it was, or two days ago, those five police officers in Dallas. Obama gave like a really powerful speech where he said, you know, you 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 turn on the internet and you see people retreating to their corners and doubling down and digging in their heels and it's hard to think that the centre won't hold and that things won't get worse. Well, I mean, he was right. The centre didn't hold and things did get worse. Uh, and Obama's last speech was, you know, if I, if, if I remember rightly, Obama's, like, farewell speech addressed all of these things, like like listen to people try and understand people don't silence your enemies listen to your enemies i'm trying to think if there's something like upbeat we can end things <laughs> yeah of course this has been a much more somber usually i'm much more like so when is bilderberg going to step in and just make everything better <laughs> that's the first thing i saw that you did by the way i didn't realize by the bilderberg group. i didn't even know i didn't even know it was i didn't even know it was you until Mm. talking to Jonah or emailing with Jonah about this. I was like, fuck, I remember watching that. Yeah. Yeah, that was scary. I tried to sneak into a Bilderberg yeah, meeting in 1996, <laughs> I think it was. And um, and I got chased. Like, we tried to get into the hotel. I was with uh, Big Jim Tucker, the uh, uh, a, a journalist who dedicated his life to trying to expose the Bilderberg group. Mm-hmm. And so we snuck around the hotel and then we got followed by men in dark glasses and a and a chase ensued uh, i say a chase but i i was um i was going 30 miles an hour so so was the guy chasing me but if i'd gone faster i think he'd have gone faster and it was ter- i've never been so scared in all my life uh i phoned at the british embassy and i said i'm being chased by the bilderberg i'm in portugal and i'm being chased by the bilderberg group and they went <gasps> and then they went Go on. <laughs> How fast are you going? <laughs> I said, what are you doing here? She said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, 
I am essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. Can you can you phone can you phone the Bilderberg Group and explain that to them? So she did. She called up the Bilderberg Group and then called me back and said, by this time I was back at my hotel, and she said, the Bilderberg Group want you to know that nobody is following you. And as she was saying this to me, there was a man behind the tree <laughs> staring at me. And she said, um, this is the bit I'll always remember, I remember all of this, but the part that really stays with me was the next thing she said, which is that the good news is if you know you're being followed, they're probably just trying to intimidate you and the dangerous ones would be those that you don't know are following you. But I thought to myself, well, what if, what if they are the dangerous ones that just happen to be like naturally good at spotting them? <laughs> <laughs> Yet it was so easy for you to sneak into Bohemian Grove. Yeah, sneaking to Bohemian Grove proved incredibly easy. Um, we literally just walked up the drive and sort of gave, gave the security guard a little wave. We said, have fun. <laughs> Whereas Alex Jones went in through the undergrowth and got a poison ivy rash. <laughs> sometimes, it just shows that sometimes going up the drive is easier than going through the undergrowth. Very good. All right. Okay, listen, Bilderberg Group. I, I hope you're cool with us because I know you're listening. Just saying, like, you guys, Skulls, like, Z, Imp, whatever the fuck you got going on, we're cool, right? We're cool. Um, we're cool. <laughs> the Butterfly Effect, July 27th, comes out on Audible. Also, uh, shout out to Pulse. Without whom none of this would music. be possible. Pulse Music. Um who let us record once again, who are awesome, and you should record stuff here. And he's really responsible for this particular episode happening. Yes, yes, <coughs> in many ways. Also, and, shout uh, out to a literal pulse that if you didn't have, you wouldn't be able to hear us. Yes, you would not, you would be dead. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, check out The Butterfly Effect, read all John's books. Go see Frank if you haven't. Go see Frank. Definitely, yeah, see Oak Jets on Netflix. You have Netflix anyways. Um, or you'll be like me and just watch people arguing with the TSA on YouTube all night on your huge TV and then fall asleep and be like, why did I do that again? Uh, <laughs> if you want to, if you like that podcast, you can support us. Um, you can go to Venmo and uh, send money to at off track that will go to Brad Worrell. Um, you can also uh, donate our site, I think. You can leave us a nice review on iTunes. You can tweet at us. You can tell people about us. You can hit, send a, uh, hit us up a message on Facebook. So yes, the message only on thing Facebook. I use Facebook for is Stephen uses that. You can also, if you want to advertise with us, um, you know, you'll reach lots of people. True, and sell lots. Or of Or if your you product. want to learn how to ruin a lot of advertising deals, we will tell you. Yeah, we yeah. can do that too. We're pretty consistent. We can do it all. That. But uh, yeah, thank you so much to Pulse and John Ronson, and uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with another. Another fun episode, guys. Maybe maybe darker than this one. Maybe no, more levity. Please. You never know. <laughs> We're cool, Bilderberg. <laughs>